Well, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. My name is Brian Padgett. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, so this week we're going to uh, finish out chapter 7 of Luke. Uh, and then the next eight weeks, uh, we're going to do a series taking us from Easter to Pentecost um, called Jesus, Hope of All Nations. And we're literally going to walk through the Bible. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, we're going to go through uh, the prophets, the Psalms, the letters, Revelation. Um, so you definitely want to be here for Revelation. My guess is it's probably the last of the sermon series because it's the last book of the Bible. But you have to show up to find out. Um, anyway... I really need the air conditioner on because it at least makes me feel like there's some feedback since you guys don't give me anything. So, um, yeah, so we'll start that next week. Um, but when I, when I was in college uh, here at Oklahoma State University, my freshman year, uh, I was in a car <clears throat> going down to Guthrie, to a church down in Guthrie. I was part of the Baptist Collegiate Ministries here. And uh, one of the things that we would do is go and, and visit these youth groups uh, and, and, like, you know, put on a puppet show or something for him, whatever it is we did. Uh, and then I, you know, one of us would get to speak or something like that. So on this particular road trip down to Guthrie, uh, we were in the car talking uh, about different things. And I think the topic came up of like, what are you looking for in someone you date? And I started listing out things, right? So if you grew up in church culture, you kind of had this dating list, you know, what you expected of the person that you were going to date. Uh, and so I had one of these lists and, and on this list, I started rattling it off, right? It's like, she can only listen to Christian music. She has to have a quiet time every morning. She has to go to church all the time. She's to serve the church. She needs to not hang out with bad people except to reach them for the gospel, but not be friends with them. And bad people were the people that smoked, drank, uh, and did all that kind of stuff, uh, did drugs, whatever. And then, and so I had this list, I'm just rattling it off and someone just starts laughing and goes, Hey, Pharisee. And it stuck, and that became my nickname my freshman year was Pharisee. Um, and and, and it's, it's funny, but here's the reality, right? So for me, um, I didn't realize it, but as I started to follow Jesus and began to be discipled, I cognitively knew, I knew in my mind what the gospel message was. I knew I believed in Jesus, that he's the savior of the world, that he has forgiven us of our sins. I knew that I was a sinner. I had trusted Jesus. I had all the right information, but I had been actually discipled as a Pharisee in the church. And so what happened is I was a, an extremely self-righteous person. And, and what, uh, as that name, I hated that name. I hated the nickname Pharisee and who wouldn't, right? Um, and it wasn't like they called me that all the time. So if you're like, oh my gosh, every time we walked into the room, Pharisee's here. It wasn't quite like that, uh, but it got close sometimes. Um, and, and the reality was, is I was, I was self-righteous beyond all, like get out. Like, so I was not a rebellious kid. Um, I, I was not, I've never done anything majorly wrong in my life. I've never been close to going to jail. I've never done anything that would, um, that, you know, would have this compelling story. You know, if I get over like, oh man, let me tell you how terrible life was for me. It's like, I don't have any of that. But I was extremely self-righteous. And, and what I didn't realize was how much shame and guilt that I bore and even fear that I bore in that self-righteousness. Because to keep that image up, it's weighty, right? So to be a whitewashed tomb is not easy. <laughs> Right, you, you gotta, always got to keep it clean on the outside, right, to trick everybody. And I bore this weight of shame and guilt and fear. And here was one of the big things for me in college that I wrestled with the most. As I wrestled with this issue, God, do you really love me? How can you love me? I, I'm not lovable. So I knew inside I was not as righteous as I was proclaiming to be, as I was pretending to be. 
but I didn't believe that God loved me, and I didn't share that with people. Now, when I was in college, I used to have, and, and, and some people may be weirded out by this, but I'm not, uh, I used to have dreams and visions. I used to have these visions. And I wanna share a couple of them with you because they, they tie into what we're talking about today. And one of them was I was a sophomore in college. I was in my apartment. Uh, I was at the Oak Ridge Apartments uh, up north of uh, on Perkins Road, uh, just out past the neighborhood Walmart or whatever. And I remember sitting there in my apartment, in my room, the door closed. I think I was the only one in the apartment and it was dark. I shut all the lights out and I'd been just crying and grieving over sin in my life, hidden sin in my life, right? Not stuff that you really want to talk about out, outward, but there was stuff, gross stuff going on within me. And, and I remember just sitting there on the edge of my bed and I'm crying and I'm, I'm just, I'm broken over my sin. And I'm just like, I'm not, God, you don't love me. You can't love me. I don't understand this. And I've always wrestled with love because I grew up in a home where I had to cry myself to sleep sometimes going, does anybody love me? And so I'm sitting there on the edge of my bed going, God, do you, you too? And I had this vision of Jesus and he's just on a knee right there in front of me. And he lifts my head up to meet his eyes. And all he says to me is, Brian, I love you. And I was undone. I mean, I just start crying like the carpet's getting all wet. <laughs> you know, there's just wet everywhere because I'm, I'm just weeping because he said my name, first of all. He said my name. That means he knows who I am. He knew who I was. He knew all about me. He knew all the hidden stuff. He knew that I wasn't as righteous as I was acting to be. And he looks at me and he says, Brian, I love you. And I just lost it. And not just from brokenness, but just tears of joy, tears of how can this be, tears of you really love me, and I'm just weeping. So fast forward now to my, after I graduated college, uh, I'm at the Cimarron Townhomes, uh, and, and that was like a place to live when I was in college. I don't know if it's still a place to live in college. You probably don't want to because of black mold and Lord knows what else, but I did. Maybe some people cleaned some things up. But Tyler was actually my roommate at this time. It was in the summer of 2003, and I had been fasting uh, this one particular week because of this, again, hidden sin in my life that I didn't want to expose. People knew about it. Some people knew about it, but I, I just, I kept thinking, no, I can overcome this. I can overcome this, and I wasn't. And so I fasted, and all week long, every day, morning, noon, and night, I just feasted on the Word of God. I didn't, and, and it was like the first time in my life I felt like I was genuinely fasting, I mean, there was just this crazy sense of like, I felt satisfied. I, didn't, I literally didn't feel hungry. I felt like the Lord had satisfied me. And so on Saturday, I decided I'm gonna break fast. And so I did that night. I went to bed. I got up, went to church that morning. And that afternoon, I fell into sin again. And I'm just depressed and discouraged and beating myself up. I go for a drive around town. I'm listening to music. I'm just crying. I go to church that night. I don't even know what happened then. I don't know what's going on. I come back. And I just confessed everything to Tyler and told him about my week, what was going on. I just went to bed. I was depressed. I was done. And I remember laying there in bed that night and I had all these questions for God. And every question, there were verses that were answering. God was responding with scripture, reminding me of the gospel truth. And the very last question I asked was like, okay, God, this is encouraging. This is really exciting. This is really good news. But I'm terrified to wake up tomorrow because I think I'm going to do it all over again. And I'm tired and I'm, I don't want this anymore. I want to be free from this. And all that was quoted was the beginnings of Romans 8. Or not Romans 8, later in Romans 8. Where it just says that if you put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. By the spirit. And he got, he, God just said, Brian, I've given you my Holy Spirit. And in that moment I had this vision. 
I don't know how to describe it, and I've shared this before, and it's this massive feast of the richest of foods, the best of the best. And before this feast, there's three scenes. I'm standing there, and I look at it in one scene, and I run off, and I tell everybody how amazing this feast is. In the second scene, I look at it, and there's a person at the end of the table eating and telling me how amazing this food is, and I run off and tell everybody about this food. And in the third scene and final scene, I'm looking at this feast, and I hear God say to me, Brian, he says my name again. He knows me. He knows who I am. He says, Brian, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because I had spent much of my life knowing about God, I was content to just look on the feast. I could see it from a distance, and I, I was testifying to true things. This is amazing. This feast is amazing. It was true. But I hadn't tasted it for myself, really gotten in there and gotten a bite for myself. And then I was content to listen to other people. I was actually reading a missionary biography at the time, and, and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm like living vicariously through this missionary who's telling me how amazing God is and how faithful he is. And I'm like, yeah, and I wouldn't go tell everybody how faithful God is. But I didn't have a story myself. I didn't think so. And God was inviting me to, Brian, no, pull up a table and sit down and eat. This feast is for you. It's for you. And the reason I share that, when you say, what does that have to do with love? Because God has invited me to the feast and is made a way by Jesus Christ for me to sit and to feast and be satisfied with the richest of foods, as he says in Isaiah 55, when he invites us to come and eat. And this morning, we're going to look at this woman of the city, this sinner. And we're going to learn about loving much and forgiving much. And I want to tie all this together here because what I want us to see this morning, what my hope for us this morning is this. Is, and I prayed this last night. I, I'm going to try to make it through without crying. I, I, I told my wife this morning, I was like, I, just, I hope I don't start crying in the middle of this sermon. But if I do, you'll be patient with me, I know, because I'm always patient with you and you cry. Y'all do it like every week, so I'm always like, okay, get through it. Um, that's not true. Nobody cries. If you're a visitor, I can't ever get anyone to cry. That's also not true. I don't know why I'm saying all Anyway, I need some coffee. Let's just, let's just start over. All right, we're better. But no, my hope this morning, and I, my prayer last night as I prepared for this, was, God, would you please break us this morning? Like, can we become undone? That's my prayer for you. That this would just so kind of wreck you in a good way <laughs> that it just kind of leaves you feeling feelings, feeling things, you know? <laughs> and you don't walk out the same. Let's jump in. Luke 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed him with, anointment, with, with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now let's stop there. This is the backdrop, okay? We need to understand this story. Jesus, in the, in right before this, last week we looked at the story of John the Baptist and him wanting to, hey, Jesus, are you the one to come or not? You know, we looked at doubt and how doubt's not a problem. It's okay to doubt, but go to Jesus in your doubt. Go to the one, right? 
But then at the very end, he talks about how the Pharisees and them reject him. Remember that? So they reject him, and he gets done saying they told John the Baptist he had a demon and that Jesus was a friend of sinners, a drunkard, and a tax collector, and, and, and a pagan, and all these other stuff. Well, now, all of a sudden, we got a Pharisee, right out of this, invites him over to his house. We know his name is Simon. Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house. So Jesus comes to this Pharisee's house and he reclines at table. Now, for some of you, you're gonna have a problem with this because we love to talk about the fact that Jesus ate in the homes of tax collectors, but you forget he also ate in the home of Pharisees. Some of you don't want the Pharisees to have any grace or opportunity. Jesus says, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. He goes to this Pharisee's home, meaning the Pharisee has opportunity just as much as the tax collector. Are you offering those same opportunities? Because Jesus comes in, sits at the table, reclines at the table, which is how they would have done it, right? He'd been on his, on his left reclining. His feet would have kind of been out. And Jesus is reclining there at this feast of this Pharisee. And other Pharisees are probably there, similar to Luke 5, when all the tax collector's buddies are there. And so Jesus goes in to eat. Now, I want you to pay attention to verse 37. There's a word there that's really key. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 37. And behold... Behold, this is not a throwaway word for Luke. When Luke says behold, same as when John the Baptist does it in, when John writes in John 1 29, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That word behold is a dramatic way of getting your attention. Behold, pay attention, hello, eyes up, look. I want you to look at this woman. Luke is drawing our attention to this woman and he wants us to pay attention. Behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner. Got it? You got it? I got your attention? That's what Luke, I got your attention. I want you to watch this woman. Pay attention to her. This woman of the city who is a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, She doesn't just come over, she brings this alabaster jar of ointment, okay, this perfumed oil. Maybe it was one of the essential oils like lavender or peppermint, but I digress. The reality is, is that women in that time would wear these these things around their neck. And it was not something, it was pretty expensive, so you didn't just use it all the time. You're pretty moderate about your use of it unless you had money, and you might use it more. But women would do this to kind of freshen up. It was a way to kind of help themselves smell better throughout the day or if they were going to certain specific events, more likely. But this woman goes and gets this alabaster jar of this perfumed oil because she's heard Jesus is reclining at the Pharisee's house. Now, understand this social context, okay? Because you're probably thinking your house and going, okay, if I had Jesus over to my house, rando strangers aren't just coming in off the street doing whatever they want to do. But that's because you're American, and that's you got you can't think like American when you read this. Okay, when they would have these bigger feasts like this, it was often understood that people from outside could come in and almost observe it. They could kind of watch, you know, kind of be a part. But there were also these gleaning laws in the Old Testament, and likely what was happening is that Jews would allow others to come in, the less fortunate, to come in and glean what was left over from the food, so that nothing went to waste. Hello, <laughs> wouldn't that be something? We weren't as wasteful. But they come in, and so this woman's coming in. She's, so it, you, I, got, you, I just say that so you understand, this isn't one of these things where like, whoa, 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 who let her in? Like that, so that's not completely out of the ordinary that she's coming in. But she hears that Jesus is there and she comes in. I want you to pay attention to what she does. Luke has got our attention on this woman for a reason, and watch. 
She stands behind him at his feet. Now, Jesus would have been reclining on his left and been eating food like this, okay? So his feet are back over here somewhere. He's reclining there. She comes in and stands behind his feet. And she is weeping to the point that her tears are literally washing his feet. Not just a teardrop here and there, bawling her eyes out. You've cried like this before, huh? You've, you've had those days where you just soaked through an entire pillow. She is weeping her eyes out over his feet. Her hair is let down, which is scandalous because it would have been a sexual thing. Hmm? So they're watching this, and this woman of the city is sinner. Now, some pastors and theologians want to say she's a prostitute. Let's just stick with what the text says. We have no idea what it means that she's a woman of the city and a sinner. We know she's a sinner, but we all are, right? But she's a woman of the city. She's known. That's what that means. Does it mean she's a prostitute? Perhaps. It could mean she was a thief. It could mean there's a whole host of things it could mean about her. The point is that she has a reputation. She's known throughout the city, and she's a sinner, and she comes in and she's weeping over Jesus' feet. And then she takes her hair. Listen, you've got to understand the weight of this. Hair for these women is a valuable part of their body. It was considered an, a sexual organ, mind you. It was very important, very valuable, very delicate. She is now washing and drying his feet with her tears and her hair. The feet were the dirtiest part of the body. You want to know why? Because they would wear flip-flops like I do all the time when I'm not, you know, preaching and have to look presentable. Good enough for Jesus, but not apparently for y'all. And as you walk through the city, you're walking through, you know, donkey manure and horse manure and cow manure and whatever else was in the street and other people's manure, feces and pee and everything else. And there's dirt and there's grime and there's all kinds of stuff. The feet were just absolutely nasty. And this woman is wetting Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping off that nastiness with her hair. Totally humiliating herself, mind you. Do you see this? This is not just some simple thing. She is degrading herself, basically, in front of everybody. She's humiliating herself, but she goes on. She wipes the feet and then begins to kiss them. Then she opens up that expensive bottle of perfume, uh, perfumed oil and begins to anoint his feet with the oil, taking them from stinky to fragrant, from nasty to clean. And she's wiping his feet. She's kissing, repeatedly kissing his feet. She's anointing his feet. And here's what you're going to miss if you're not paying attention. Everything that she is doing is how slaves would treat their masters. Or they would treat kings and people in royalty. They would fall at their feet and kiss their feet. It was a way of acknowledging you are high and mighty and you are, you are above me. You, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. But no one's forcing her to do this. She's just doing it of her own accord. She heard Jesus was in the house and she came in and starts wetting his feet, wiping it with her hair, starts kissing his feet and anoints his feet with oil. And look what happens with the Pharisee. Now, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, pay attention to those words. When the Pharisee saw this, what's his response? If this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, before you want to quickly throw off the tag sinner, this woman is gonna have a word. Do not take that from me, is what she's basically gonna tell us here. You'll see this. Don't lose the fact that she's a sinner. She's a sinner. That's not the problem. I mean, it is a problem, but that's not what's going like, So they're tagging her as sinner, and that meant something to the Pharisee, right? That meant to the Pharisee, have nothing to do with this person. Don't come around them. They're unclean. They're gross. Everything else. They need to become holy. They need to become righteous. They need to become clean before we can have dealings with them, fellowship with them. What he's basically saying is, shocker, the friend of sinners doesn't know who's touching him. Meaning, he doesn't believe he's a prophet at all. This is a bit sarcastic. Okay, if this clown was a prophet for real, he would know who, and listen to what he says, and what sort of woman this is that's touching him. (laughs) That Pharisee, now listen, the Pharisee understands what's going on here. This woman of the city, this sinner, is touching this man who claims to be a prophet, who's healing people, raising the dead, doing all this other stuff. But if he was truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is, what sort of things that she's done, and he would have nothing to do with this. He would say something. But Jesus is just reclining, letting her do it. He's not stopping her. He doesn't stop her and say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. Don't clean my feet. No, 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 no. I'm not worthy to have you clean my feet. No, I'm not worthy to have you do that. No, I'm not worthy of that. Jesus didn't go. Jesus is letting her do this for him. Now look what he says to the Pharisee, verse 40. And Jesus answering him said, now remember, the Pharisees, he's not saying this audibly. (laughs) How's that for creeping you out, right? Jesus is in your head right now. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking, right? So he's, this guy's like, okay, this guy's a prophet, seriously. And Jesus is like, hey, I got something to say to you. Well, say it, teacher. What you got? Here it is, ready? A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, let's stop there. So Jesus, here's what Jesus does. He's, getting, he's leading this guy on, right? He's, he's, got, he's giving him, getting him somewhere. He doesn't give a parable. He gives an illustration here. He says, I got something to say to you. He says, say it. He goes, okay, there's a certain moneylender who had two debtors. One of them, let's put it in our terms, owed $500,000. The other owed $5,000. They neither one could pay, so the moneylender says, I'm canceling the debt of both of you. Then the question he asks is really odd if you think about it. Which of them will love the moneylender more? If Tinker Federal Credit Union called me this afternoon and said, hey, Brian, we know that you can't really pay off your car loan, so we've decided to cancel it. It's yours. You're free from it. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to be thankful. I'm probably going to tell people you should bank at Tinker Federal Credit Union, but they haven't, so I'm not going to say that about them just yet. So if they do that, if they're listening and help me out, I'll help you out. But I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to define anything by love. 
Like I'm not, I don't have this love now for Tinker. I'm not gonna go down to Tinker on Monday and wet their feet with my tears and kind of do something with my hair because it's not long enough and then try to anoint them with lavender oil or whatever. I'm not gonna do that. You see what I'm saying? Like I'm not, I don't take, so this question of who's gonna love him more is an odd question. But Jesus is getting at the heart of what's going on here. He's talking about love. This woman, what she just did for Jesus is an act of love. It's not something she's doing because she has to. She's not been compelled to this. She's not been forced to do this. She is doing what slaves do with their masters, what people do with royalty. She is choosing to do this out of love for Jesus. And the man says, the one I suppose who had the larger debt. You suppose? You suppose, Simon? Really? You think? You see how Jesus is far more gracious than I would be? I mean, I would be like rocking him with all kinds of sarcasm right now and everything else. But Jesus looks at him and says, you have judged rightly. Listen, don't let that go away. What did Jesus just say to the Pharisee? You have judged rightly, meaning you're not an idiot. You know and you see what I'm getting at. You know when it's put to you, if two people had major, one had major debt and one had minor debt and they're both forgiven, who's going to be more, who's gonna love more? The one with larger debt, you can see it, but the problem with the Pharisees is they can't see it. They are blind. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. He says, you have judged rightly. Just because your theology's right, just because your judgment's right, doesn't mean you love Jesus. Let me say that again. Just because your theology is right and just because your judgments are right does not mean you love Jesus. You have judged rightly. Now pay attention to what happens next. Ready, let's keep reading. Verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want you to pay attention to what Jesus does. Luke gives us these details that are so great and so important. He says, Jesus turned to the woman and he's looking at the woman. Simon, I can see him over here. He turns and looks at the woman and says, Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus has moved his attention from Simon to the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. And he's gonna uphold this woman in front of Simon, in front of his guest, as one who is righteous and acting rightly, the one who is truly in love with Jesus, the one who truly loves. And he says, Simon, do you see this woman? From the time I came in, you offered me no water for my feet, Simon. Simon. 
She has not stopped crying and wetting my feet and wiping them with her hair, Simon. Simon, from the time I came in, you didn't give me a kiss. She hasn't ceased to kiss my feet, Simon. And Simon, the other thing is, is you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with this oiled perfume. She has shown me hospitality. She has shown me great love. She has shown me these things, but you did none of these things for me, which were customary, by the way. It was customary to provide water for someone to wash their feet before they came in your home. They would put oil on their head to help freshen them up so they would smell good. They would kiss them on the cheek as a way of saying, I welcome you, I greet you, and everything else. The Pharisee did none of this for Jesus. And what the Pharisee would have done in providing all these things and anointing his head, she did all at his feet. She cleans his feet, wipes it off with her hair. She kisses his feet, not his cheek. And she anoints his feet, not his head. And there's a reason for that, and you're going to see it here in just a second. But Jesus tells us what's going on. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. In the English, this is hard to understand because it looks like what he's saying is that she's forgiven because she loves much. You're not forgiven because you love Jesus. She loves Jesus because she's forgiven. And I'll explain that here in a second. She is showing love to Jesus. Here's the thing. When she came into that room of the Pharisee's house and gathered around the table are all these Pharisees, but she's there for one person. She's there for Jesus. She comes in as a woman of the city, a woman who is a sinner. But when she comes into that room, she does not care what everybody else thinks about her. She is there for one person. She's there for Jesus. And she cannot, she will do anything she needs to to get to him. It doesn't matter how humiliating it is. It doesn't matter what people may say. She doesn't care about anybody else in the room. She is there to anoint his feet. She is there to say, I love you. 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 She weeps tears of joy, washing his feet. She takes her hair. She doesn't care. My hair doesn't matter in this moment. I'm right here in front of Jesus. I'm going to clean his feet and I'm going to use this oil to anoint his feet and kiss his feet, showing him that you are my deliverer. You are my king. You are my savior. You're the one. I don't care if they call me a woman of the city and a sinner anymore. I'm with him. Do you hear that? The worth of this woman was wrapped up in Jesus. She didn't come in degraded and depressed and beat down because everybody around her saw her as a woman of the city and a sinner. She's free from that. That's why she can do that. You don't have that kind of freedom, neither do I. Do we? We do. But when was the last time the affections for Jesus in your heart led you to do something that was publicly kind of humiliating? Kind of made you look crazy? Do you feel the weight of what this woman's doing right now? All eyes are on her. And she doesn't care. Do you not want that kind of freedom when you go to work tomorrow? When you go to class tomorrow? When you go home? To have that kind of freedom? To know that you've been loved and forgiven much? 
And because of that, you're not hinged by, you're not stuck to the world's definitions of you. You don't have to play tribalism anymore. How many of you people are worn out from looking at the world constantly going, do I matter to you? Do I matter to you? If I do this, will I matter to you? If I say this, will I matter to you? If I love this, will I matter to you? If I agree with this politics, will you like me? Will you love me if I do this? Will you love me if I do that? Will anybody love me? Will anybody love me? And she's saying, I don't care if you call me a woman of the city and a sinner, I'm forgiven. And I'm with him, and I love him, and he's delivered me, and he set me free. So I don't care if I get my hair all dirty. I don't care if you think I'm unclean, because he has made me whole and clean and forgiven me. That's why we don't want to throw off the tag sinner. It's by that very tag that she understood the weight of what his forgiveness was. And I just wonder... I really do wonder this for our church. Do you, have you been forgiven much? Or are we the people that have been forgiven little? And therefore we love little. And how would you know? Right, Jesus isn't here in person for you to go let your hair down and clean his feet. I'll do that. Okay. Are we the ones that have been forgiven much? Like when was the last time you were just broken over your sin? And I mean like weeping on the floor, just broken. Are we just so righteous that we can't even break anymore? Or let's talk about forgiveness. We've all, probably in many ways over the last couple of years especially, experienced a lot of hurt. by people that have left our church, by people outside of our church, by friends of yours, by loved ones of yours. And I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, um, this is where I'm gonna lose it. I'm one of those that reads Romans 12 when it says, do not seek vengeance, but let the Lord repay. <laughs> it's the Lord's to repay. And that makes me angry because I want these people to hurt. I want them to feel the pain. But what I'm learning is that vengeance is a heavy burden to carry. It's really heavy. And forgiveness is freeing. And see, some of you are living enslaved right now because you won't forgive. You're like me. I'm being honest with you. You say, well, you're a pastor. Yeah, I didn't say I was Jesus. And it's heavy, it's heavy, it's really heavy. But do you see how free this woman is? It is a terrifying thing to be vulnerable publicly. 
I don't know of a more vulnerable thing that this woman could do than to walk into the room of haters and name callers and abusers and stiff-necked people as we find out in Acts and only have eyes for Jesus and only care about what he thinks about you. Jesus says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. That is a past or present perfect phrase there. Meaning this, he's not saying your sins are now forgiven. Your sins have already been forgiven. Meaning this woman has probably already had an interaction with Jesus prior to this. And she had been forgiven. So when Jesus was in town and she got wind of it, she had been waiting. When he comes back, I don't know how to repay him. I don't know how to thank him. You see, here's the crazy thing, that when Jesus cancels the debt of sin, when Jesus cancels your sin, when you are forgiven, there's another debt that comes in. It's the debt of love, and it's a debt you can never repay, but it's one that you constantly feel like you got to give. That's why when Romans 13, 8 says, Oh, no one anything but the debt of love. Do you feel that towards one another in here? Do we owe one another the debt of love? Do we feel love toward one another? Are we forgiving one another? Do we feel the forgiveness of God? And did it go, God, you have forgiven me much and I can't stop loving you. I don't know how to repay you back in love. But it's love that you're repaying with, not vengeance, not wrath. It's love. I love you. You've forgiven me. I am forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. And you're forgiven. Why? Not because of anything you did, but because of his great love for us. He did that. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And what do the Pharisees do? What? Who are you? And they're angry at him. Why? Because they know and they're right. Only God can forgive sins. And Luke is showing us again, Jesus is God. That's why he's forgiving sins. He has the power to do it. And she believes him and they don't. Do you believe Jesus has the power to forgive you of your sins? Do you believe past or present perfect, you are forgiven, meaning it's already happened? You say, well, how do we know it's already happened? Because 2,000 years ago, he died on the cross for our sins. And all of your sins were future sins when he died. Hello. Hello. All of your sins. So if you're sitting in here today going, God can't forgive me for this. Hello, 2,000 years ago, he said otherwise. That's why Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, this is how God showed his great love for us. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Not because you got your act together and then he died. Because while you were still sinners, he died for you. And we weren't even born yet. But all of it has gone on to Jesus and he offers you forgiveness. That's why Romans 8.1 can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. There's no condemnation. So dear sinner, when you sin, there's no condemnation. You don't have to come shamefully for, before God to confess your sin. You can own it before him and say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. And he, he says in John 1, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and all self-righteousness. Woman, your sins are forgiven. Don't be like the Pharisees going, who is this that can forgive sins? He looks at her and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can I, um, let me just unpack that real quick. 
Because listen, I'm telling you, you're gonna get it confused if you think Jesus saved you because you showed great love to him. There's nothing you can bring to God to make him love you and forgive you. There is nothing you can do. It is a debt you cannot repay and your only hope is that the one to whom you owe the money says, I've canceled it. It's been paid in full. You're free. This is that year of Jubilee, huh? When you set them free. And this woman has been set free. And I want that freedom. I want that freedom so bad. I hope you want that freedom. I hope, I hope today you don't walk out of here going, well, that was a great sermon. Or it sucked. I don't care what you think. I, I, just, I hope you'll sit with the forgiveness piece. Listen, do you understand this is the most powerful news in the world? There's not a religion on the planet that offers this. There's not one. I promise you. It doesn't make any sense. But when you've been forgiven and you've been set free from the burden of that debt that's just weighing on you, you will love much. And I fear some of us are like the Ephesian church in Revelation, that we have forgotten the height from which we've fallen. We've abandoned our first love and we need to repent. Like, we, we know what's going on. Like, our DNA groups are pretty much not existent. Our gospel communities, people show up, but it's a matter of are we actually going to be vulnerable with each other and share hard things and talk about what the Lord's actually doing in our lives. I mean, Sunday service. I, I, doesn't it feel like we're stuck? Does anyone else feel that? Is it just me? Do you know when the last time was we saw someone come to Christ, come to faith in Christ through our church that we know of? It's like four years. We've been forgiven much. But do we love much? Maybe we've only been forgiven little. Maybe we actually think we're a lot more righteous than we realize and we just needed Jesus for this top part. Do we just avoid the sinners and tax collectors of our day? Your faith has saved you, he says. Don't get confused. It is by faith you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells, right? This is not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Woman, your faith has saved you. Don't get fixated on the faith. It's the object of her faith who has saved her. Amen? Your faith is nothing but faith. It's the object of your faith that saves you. That's what he's saying. Your faith in me has saved you. Saved here means this. You have been saved from your past sins. You've been forgiven. You are currently being saved from the power of sin in your life. And one day you will be fully and finally saved from the very presence of sin altogether. That's what that word saved means. It's a loaded word. It means wholeness. And then he ends it with go in peace. And that's not just have a nice day. Peace out, lady. That is a huge statement of saying, go in the shalom of God. That word shalom, the peace of God means wholeness, fullness, restoration, completeness. 
Go in the peace, the shalom of God. Go, you have been made, you've been made right with God. You have peace with God, shalom. Man, I don't know how you're walking out of that house that day. I'm gonna have a little bit of a, st- a strut, you know? Like, what's up then? Why are you limping like that? Girl, I ain't no limp. That's peace. Okay. That looks whole. She walks away in the peace of God. Now, this next part is not going to make any sense. I promise you. You're going to read and go, why did he add this in? But it does. Eight through one through three, and then we're done. Soon afterward, he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, and Herod's, uh, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, that word soon afterward can mean the next day. Whether it was the next day or the day after, it was pretty soon after. So Luke's tying these two things together, and he's doing this for a reason. If you notice, every story that, like he'll share a few stories, and then it always ends with word spread about Jesus or his ministry continues. Right, so this is the same thing. So really eight, one through three is kind of ending this part. It probably should be back in chapter seven, but whatever. So it's just tied in here. And I wanna show you how it ties in, okay? Because here's the thing about forgiveness and the whole loving much thing. When you've been forgiven and you understand the weight and how much forgiveness you have received, when you understand you're the $500,000 person that's been forgiven, not the 5,000, when you understand that there's a huge thing that you cannot pay back that's been taken off, it is done, it is canceled. Now, someone had to absorb that. That's why it's important we understand Jesus' death on the cross. If Jesus doesn't die on the cross, then the sins can't be just forgiven. Somebody has to absorb it. So Jesus absorbs the penalty. He pays the price. He does that and cancels death. That's why it says in Colossians 2 that he took our sins and the debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. And when he says it is finished, it's done. He ain't going back to the cross. We don't keep re-crucifying Jesus every time we ask for forgiveness. It's once for all, the forgiveness of sins to all who believe in Jesus. This morning, that gift is available to everybody. I don't care if you're a Christian or non-Christian. That gift is available to you. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ for all who will confess and trust him. Now, when he does this, when he forgives this woman, her whole life is now reoriented around Christ. She comes in and she gives of this alabaster jar of ointment. She does, and none of that means anything. All of it doesn't mean, it's not worth anything anymore compared to Christ. This ointment isn't worth what it was before. I will gladly use this to anoint the feet, the feet of somebody. Think about that. But she anoints his feet. Why? Because these verses, so I, don't, I don't see the connection. You see how it says there at the beginning that he went throughout the cities and villages? Listen, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Now think about this. That word proclaiming means this. It means preach. So when we say preach the gospel, it's not what I'm doing up here. This is preaching, sure. You can preach the gospel. Every man, woman, and child can preach the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you can preach the gospel. Proclaim it. That's what it means to proclaim it. It is not tied to Sunday morning. And I want to be clear on that because I've had people leave our church and go, well, you're not preaching the gospel. This was like back when we first got started. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, we didn't have Sunday services. I knew what he meant. You're not actually preaching, period, is what he meant to say. I'm like, brother, you can say all the other bad things about us you want. 
we absolutely preach the gospel. That's the one thing, you wanna, you wanna make me angry? Say that. Everything else is fine. You're too big, your hair's ugly. I don't care, say it all. Say whatever you want. You say we're not preaching the gospel, we're gonna have a conversation. It's not mean, but it's like, hey, listen, we actually do. And that's really hurtful, and you don't need to say things like that. You need to be very careful. Because we do preach the gospel, and so can you. But it also says, get that, you ready? And bringing the good news of the kingdom. Doesn't that sound the same? Here, here's what the word bringing is in the Greek. Evangelion, it means evangelism. Hello! Isn't preaching and evangelism the same thing? I mean, that's what we've made it, right? What is, why is Luke writing this? Why write proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God? Here's why. Isaiah 52. Let me read this to you. I'm gonna read it out of the Christian Standard Bible. And it says this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings good news of good tidings, or news of good tidings, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In Isaiah 52, 7, it talks about how beautiful are the feet of those on the mountain who proclaim peace, but who bring news of good tidings, evangelism. What is going on here? What is Luke doing? This woman has just anointed Jesus' feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who those who proclaim peace. Did he not just proclaim peace to this woman? Go in peace. He just proclaimed peace over the woman. Now he's going out throughout all the towns and villages and cities and saying he's proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. He is fulfilling the, the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 52. He's the herald with beautiful feet, bringing good news and, and proclaiming peace and bringing the salvation of God, the kingdom of God. What happens after Isaiah 52 is it rattles off this whole long section about the coming servant, the suffering servant, where we get hit about how he's gonna be disfigured beyond human recognition. He's gonna be nailed to a cross. He's gonna bear our iniquity. He's going to carry our sorrows and our shame. He's going to be crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And it's going to go on and on and on talking about the suffering servant. But the introduction is, here's the one who brings good news, the one with beautiful feet. You want to know why in John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet? I know what we think it means. I know what we've been taught. We've been taught that, oh, well, we're just supposed to serve one another, right? We're supposed to wash each other's feet. And so we have these awkward ceremonies where people go overseas and we want to commission them by washing their feet or we're going to do something, wash their feet. Or like husbands and wives wash their feet. I'm not knocking it. It's still a way to show servant-heartedness. But what Jesus is actually doing with those guys, he's about to go and be crucified. He's cleansing their feet because you now are going to be the ones who have beautiful feet to bear the good news. Hello! That's not just some random thing that happened. He's cleaning their feet. This is a way of commissioning them that you now are gonna be the heralds on the mountain with beautiful feet, proclaiming the peace of God and bringing good news of the kingdom of God to all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. Amen. That's what's going on. But now look what happens. He has the 12 with him. Okay, well, we're used to that. But look what Luke does. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And then he names three of them. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom the seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. That's a high up dude in the, the whole thing. He's household manager over all the slaves in Herod's court. And this is his wife, who's now following Jesus, and Susanna. We don't know anything about Susanna. She's probably a great person. We don't know what happened. We don't know what her story is. 
and many others who provided for them out of their means. Guys, you gotta understand how crazy scandalous this is. Rabbis never had women follow them, ever. Ever, 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 ever. Women could not be disciples of rabbis. Let me say that again. Women could not be disciples of rabbis. And Luke just tells us there's the 12 with him and there's many women following him now too. Their lives have been changed and now reoriented. They are now centered on Christ. And not only are these women following him, they're the followers and they're the financiers of Jesus's ministry in the 12. You wanna know how they got food and everything else? These women were providing out of their own means. Folks, that is unheard of at this time. Paul eleva- or Luke elevates for us the women, the Gentiles, the marginalized. I said this multiple times and you're seeing it right here. This is the only account we have of this. And Luke tells us many women followed Jesus. And here were three people he named. And it's important that he named them because you could go find them at this time. They were still alive and they could testify. So if you think he's making stuff up, go talk to Mary of Magdalene. Go talk to Susanna. Go talk to Joanna. And they gave out of their means. When Jesus forgives you of all your sins, he changes your life. These women felt free to follow Jesus, who's way more than a rabbi, way more than a prophet, and to give of their own means. They were willing to go broke on Jesus. When was the last time you examined your giving? When was the last time you examined your prayer life? When was the last time you examined forgiveness? When was the last time you were undone for Jesus? Just thinking about what he's done for you. When was the last time what Jesus has done for you led you to do the same for someone else? Who owes you a great deal right now that you could forgive? And will you forgive them? Can I be honest? I don't want to forgive them because it feels like I'm letting them off the hook. There are few people in my head I'm thinking about right now that I know the Lord is really digging in me and I'm going, Lord, I don't know how to do this. I'm terrified. What it's not saying is forgiveness means this, that you get back with the person that's been abusing you. That's not forgiveness. Ah, suck it up and get back in there. Just forgive them. No, no. Boundaries are healthy. (laughs) Boundaries is actually a good way to love someone. Did you know that? Please hear me when I say that. Boundaries is actually a way to love someone. Because if I keep letting you do this, I'm not gonna love you because you keep hurting me, you keep harming me, you keep doing this. But if I set a boundary and we stay there, I can actually love you And so sometimes forgiveness means we gotta set boundaries around people, and that's okay. But for some of us, it's not that we need that. We just need to forgive people. And some people, they're never gonna ask you for forgiveness. How do you have a heart of forgiveness? Ready to forgive if they do ask, while maintaining healthy boundaries all at the same time. There's freedom in forgiveness, isn't there? But the weight of vengeance is too much. 
And some of you are being way overwhelmed with vengeance and retribution. And Jesus is offering you the freedom of forgiveness this morning, both for yourself and by the power of the Spirit of God toward others. Your faith in Jesus Christ is what saves you and makes you whole. Go in peace. Let's pray. God, help us. We are, we are more like the woman than we want to admit. But we're also more like the Pharisees than we want to admit to. Father, in this day and age, it's so easy to seem right in our own eyes and to become self-righteous and self-justified and bigoted and to leave people out and not be a place where, not be a safe person where people can be who they are and we're gonna love them in the middle of it and hope that they'll trust Christ and be transformed by you too. For some people, we've, we've made it seem like you've gotta change your politics or your views on this, that, or the other before you can actually come to Jesus or be close to me or be my friend. And Lord, we've added so many things to the gospel that we've lost it in many ways. We forget this basic good news, woman, this woman that you set free, this woman of the city, she didn't have a name. Luke didn't give her a name. And I think part of that is because it's for us to see ourselves as the woman of the city, the sinner. But what's amazing is Simon the Pharisee says, if Jesus, if you knew who she was and what sort of woman she was, you wouldn't let her touch you. But Jesus, you make very clear in this story, you know exactly who she is. And that's why you're letting her touch you. And she knows who she is. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room today that don't know who they are because they found their worth in everything else but Jesus. And they're trying to match up and they're trying to be good enough. They're trying to be smart enough, trying to be rich enough, trying to be known enough, trying to be smart, trying to be whatever else it is enough to be in the social, right social crowd or whatever. We're begging and pleading for everyone to give affirmation to us. And we're missing the fact that Jesus, you're in the room with us and that should be enough. May it be enough for us that we're forgiven. We've been set free and now you name us, you know who we are, and that's what should matter more than anything else. And so let it, dear Lord, please break us, make us undone today. Help us to weep with brokenness, but also with joy. And then to maybe just do some things that make us look undignified for Jesus. I think of David dancing naked, like he became undignified before the Lord. What does that look like for us, God? So Spirit of God, do what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.